0: Good day and welcome to another episode of SUP FM Podcast. I'm Nick and I'm sitting in the midst of a spring day and it's pouring with rain here in Portugal. So some of you may be pleased to know that Portugal doesn't always get the best weather. But anyway, today I had the privilege of speaking to Andy Bartlett, who paddled 3,000 kilometers down the Danube River. And what an amazing chat. It was so... I mean, look, be prepared to be inspired because it was thrilling. I was just thinking, oh man, I'd love to go for a paddle now. Listening to him floating, describing how he went floating down the down the Danube River. But it wasn't all roses. And he, he tells us exactly what it was like. And some of it was really hard and some of it was obviously absolutely amazing. But Andy... Joins a select group of people who do these ultra long paddles like Dave Cornthwaite, who we interviewed back in series one. He paddled down the Mississippi and I think at that time it was the longest paddle in the world. Also a guy called Matt Crofton wrote a book called Mighty, which is really good. It's in the show notes of Dave Cornthwaite's paddle and uh, that's a really great um, account of his paddling down the Mississippi River. That was Matt Crofton. Then some other guys, obviously Spike Reed, who we interviewed last year as well. And I also paddled across the Algarve with Spike Reed. Um, he paddled down the Ganges, and hopefully we'll get him on to talk about his epic 3,000-kilometer paddle. You know, it's, it's really, really great listening to these people and how they prepare and stuff. So please listen on to Andy Bartlett talking all about SUP Danube, TEM SUP. And a whole bunch of other things he's a fascinating guy really really great to listen to
1: aloha and welcome to sup FM the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere so with no further ado let's get out on the water and on with the show here are your hosts Nick and Simon
0: great. So All recording and the little waveforms are looking good um, Andy, welcome to the Sup FM podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time.
1: Hi there, no, great to, great to be with you.
0: Excellent, so where are you right now, actually, in the middle of this COVID-19 lockdown?
1: <laughs> right now, uh, I am on the south coast of the UK Uh, I managed to uh, find myself a little place near the ocean to hold up while this all happens around us.
0: Beautiful. So are you allowed to actually get out on the ocean? Because that's one of our challenges down here in Portugal at the moment.
1: Yes. um, Well, I think it's very much up to personal interpretation at the moment. Um, I've seen several people out paddling on paddle boards, on kayaks and all sorts. Uh, I personally have made the decision not to go out and paddling. Um, I don't think it personally is responsible to go out and put myself in a position where I could uh, fall into danger and then put pressure on the, the health services. Plus, um, I know the ocean isn't managed per se, but uh, the British Canoe Union and um, the the waterways authorities for all canals and rivers have have closed them to water sports. So, if that's their their rule for inland waterways, I kind of think that should be the same for for the ocean as well. But but that's just my view. So no, I'm looking on enviously at those that are paddling. And, um, yeah, I mean,
0: it does. You're right. It makes a lot of sense. And I've had the same feeling. I haven't paddled for about over a month now. I've been stuck inside for 40 days or something. But um, when you think about people going out jogging and stuff, well, you know, it's kind of paddleboarding is similar. But yeah, you're right. It's best not to. So, but this place on the south coast of the UK is that is that far from where you grew up? Um, Oh yes, it's probably a good
1: 150 miles away. Yeah, I grew up in a place called Cheltenham in Gloucestershire on the kind of the west side of England, halfway between uh, Bristol and Birmingham. So a lovely place, surrounded by the Cotswolds countryside, which I don't think I really appreciated. Um, as a kid it's only now when I go back to see my folks who still live there that I kind of really enjoy the outdoors and uh, everything that place has to offer. Yeah it sounds spectacular that area it really does. It's it's very lovely yes it, there's lots of picture perfect um, idyllic little villages which American tourists go nuts for.
0: <laughs> so um, did you enjoy a sporty youth getting out to see all those uh, natural spectacles? Uh, g- growing up I I don't think I was overly sporty or outdoorsy as a kid. I mean, at school
1: you, you play football and hockey and tennis or whatever as, and everyone does, as I enjoyed, I was part of a scout. So we used to go off and do hiking and overnight camps, but I never remember it being a massive part of, of my upbringing. Um, and I think once uh, you head towards later teenage years, that soon all kind of faded away. And it wasn't until much, much later in life that I kind of came back to that outdoorsy,
0: adventurous way of living life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because obviously we're going to um, de- dive deep into that in, in, in a few minutes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but there's no scouts, nothing in, in your youth, nothing like that?
1: Um, a little bit of scouts, yes. Um Yeah, a little bit of that. Um, We were quite an unorthodox scout troop. I never once remember earning any kind of badge or anything. I think our scout leaders were far more interested in just teaching us skills. So I remember... uh, Uh, having to go and collect wood. And then one of the scout leaders were bringing in some rabbits they had freshly shot. And we were taught how to skin those and cook them and do all kinds of craziness like that rather than, I I don't know what scout badges badges are, but no, I never remember helping
0: anyone across the road or or learning any sewing or anything like that. (laughs) Yeah, I never got to scouts. Actually, we had a thing called Cubs, which is the the younger version of scouts back in South Africa. I'm sure it's the same thing there, yeah. But now... um, so obviously, it's like out that dozy thing. But you, you kind of deviated and went off into the performing arts. Is that is that correct? Because I was scouting through your your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> yeah, no, my LinkedIn profile bears
1: no resemblance to my, I guess, my adventurous side of life. Yeah, that's completely right. Um, I I spent a lot of my teenage years and and youth, and then the rest of my professional career working in live events. So that all kind of started again at school. I was in school plays as. Uh, I think a lot or many of us, everyone is. Um, but then it all kind of came together for me, I think. I remember it so clearly. It was one night on an after-school club when I must have been around 13, and the drama teacher was going to show anyone, any student that wanted to, just how the lighting system worked in the school hall for the for the school plays. And I, I stuck behind and did that. And I remember getting very annoyed at my, my schoolmates that were there at the same time who were kind of messing around and not really taking it seriously. And I was fascinated by it and off the back of that i went and helped and started doing some backstage technical stuff for school plays and then the local amateur dramatics and then i got hooked in with some local rental companies that had some sound and lighting equipment so started working with bands and conferences and nightclubs and all kinds of things and then uh, i think that's probably the main reason i didn't do so well for my a levels is i spent every evening and night that i could out working and pushing flight cases and rigging lights and speakers and all kinds of things. And much to the despair of my parents, who I thought probably wondered what I was going to do for a living, I managed to find a university course that specialised in exactly that. So I went off to the Institute of Performing Art in Liverpool, where I spent three years studying uh, uh, theatre and live performance technology. So anything that you could imagine related to a live performance, um, but from a backstage point of view. So Lighting, sound, production, costume, makeup, you name it, that's what I went to. And then I ended up being a lighting designer and now uh, a live event manager. So yeah, my, my professional
0: days are spent as a freelance uh, event manager. But then that's just sort of opens up a ton of stories because you must have done some very interesting <laughs> events. <right? laughs> Look, I think that's probably a
1: whole other podcast. But yes, um, yeah, I spent many years living on tour buses and moving around the country and the world, festivals theater shows you name it um and yeah so currently at the moment uh, well at the moment i'm very much not working at all because the live events industry has uh, understandably but unfortunately ground to a to a big halt but for the last few years i've actually been working in motorsport so i've been working for a um an organization called formula e which is a single seat all electric race series uh, the way i describe it it looks like formula one but it's all electric vehicles so we go to about 12 cities around the world build some racetracks and uh, and, and race some electric vehicles, which is super good fun.
0: And, yeah, it's a shame not to be able to do that at the moment. Yeah, it's excellent. I actually had a look at Formula E for some time back because I was very into Formula 1, and I thought this is a much greener version of Formula 1, which is a really, really good idea. But um, all those um, all those events that you, you were managing, one of them was the YesTable, right? Is that how you got into adventuring was it through the um through the yes um so yeah you're you're obviously
1: talking about uh, mr dave cornthwaite and the say yes more organization um yeah and that definitely that definitely had a part to play um it was 2015 where at that point, I had my own event management company and nothing too grand, just uh, it was a couple of offices, probably about eight staff or so. Um, but I very much felt that something was missing in my life. I kind of had that niggle that something wasn't right. And uh, I went through months and months, if not a year or so, of trying to figure out what that was. And um, I took a two-month sabbatical. I moved house. I got out of a relationship, got into a new relationship, got out of that one as well. And um, at the end of everything, I... um I took up a load of hobbies and, and said, right, well, let, let's find some new things to do in my spare time. And one of that was just kind of saying yes to things, even before I knew what Say Yes More was. And I ended up meeting up with with Dave Cornthwaite and a few others, and we went uh, camping just uh, on a field overlooking uh, London. It sounds probably quite random, but uh, it was a, a small spark of meeting people out there, which definitely aided and encouraged my adventurous streak. And yeah, it was through that that, um, I ended up doing all sorts of crazy things, but one of those was, was paddling the Danube.
0: So take us through that. I mean, there must have been a long lead-up to the Danube expedition. Sort of paint me a picture the first time you stood up on a stand-up paddleboard before that.
1: Yeah, you'd think there'd be a long lead-up, wouldn't you? Um Yeah. <laughs> um well paddleboarding for me started uh personally in the summer of 2015 um my birthday is in july and i have a big uh belief one of the little things i do in my life is every birthday i try and do something new i like to remind myself that although i'm getting older there is still more things i don't know and more things i haven't tried than things that i have and i found myself in new york on that particular birthday in 2015 New York, not the most outdoorsy, adventurous, wild and nature-filled place, but it was on Group Ton I found uh, a discount code for an hour or two's introduction to stand-up paddleboarding on the Hudson River uh, at sunset. I thought that sounds like a good, good fun thing to do. I, I'd known several people that had paddleboard, and they'd always raved about it. So, so yeah, my first time on a stand-up paddleboard was on. I think it was the 76th Street Basin. If anyone's been to New York or lives there, you'll know the air Sea uh, the uh, is it the air Sea Museum, um, the USS Intrepid aircraft carrier, and next to that
0: is a paddleboard um company so i've seen those guys online i've seen those guys online it looks crazy i think it's called manhattan sup i'm not sure if it's the same company yeah that sounds
1: about right yeah um and it's looking back now it was an insane thing to do really um because the the hudson is a big tidal river And we went out and we paddled around the little inlet, which was wonderful. And you're you're paddling next to this enormous aircraft carrier, which is now a museum. And then they said, right, you all look good, so let's go out on the river. And so we paddled out into the swell. And uh, I remember as we went out around the end of the aircraft carrier and the, the waves start to pick up a little bit, we heard these almighty horn blasts of this ginormous cruise ship chose that moment to push away from dock and to come out into the middle of the river and our instructor was very good very calm they said we're just going to wait here We'll, you know obviously they will move first and they took off but the the waveforms from that boat maneuvering were (laughs) were quite challenging and we all did fine, and we all, you know, just followed the instructor's lead and waited for them to move off, had a paddle around, and then went back to the dock. And it was only when we returned that the instructor fully admitted that if they'd known that that cruise ship was going to move, they would never have taken a beginner's group of paddlers out. But uh, I guess that was a small baptism of
0: fire. I think that's probably the most spectacular initiation into SUP that I've ever heard of.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> well, it didn't put me I mean, off, which is the main thing.
0: Uh, good, yeah, it's one of my favourite questions. Then. So, But no... Like I so said, let's leap forward from, from you know paddling underneath an aircraft carrier to landing in the a chilly spring in 2016 in Germany. How did you get there from there?
1: Yeah, right. Well, having come back from New York, I knew I wanted to do it again. So I scouted around in London for anyone that was doing it there. And I came across a company called Active 360. Um, and they have bases all over London. And I went out with them from Putney, where I lived at the time, um, in southwest London, just for a couple of hours up to Hammersmith and back. and. Just almost to kind of go, was it just the fact that I was in Manhattan or did I actually enjoy the paddleboarding? And I realized that I did enjoy the paddleboarding. And then it was another Say Yes More camp out just with some friends. I was chatting and just generally saying that at that point I had decided that I was going to leave my business. As I'd said, there was this niggle in my life that something wasn't right. And I would got down to the point where there were only two things left. That I could change. One was my family, and I I love my family, and equally they're your families. So you can't really get rid of them. And secondly, was my was my business and my work. And I realised it was my work that was making me unhappy and not fulfilling my life. So I decided to get out of that, sell my sell my shares, and pretty much take a year off. And chatting through, and I, I mentioned to a friend of a friend who was sat around the campfire that I just started paddleboarding and was looking for a big adventure to take on. And they said their work was coming to an end, and they'd always wanted to go and explore the Danube River. They'd lived in Germany, they'd lived in Austria, um, and so and that it was as simple as that, really. That's how a plan was formed. They said they wanted to explore a river. I said I love stand-up paddleboarding, and so I think a week later we were in a pub again, and we shook hands, and and that was that. We decided we were going to do it. Um, it sounds, <laughs> <cool>. <laughs> and, and and we knew nothing at that point, really. We were very unprepared, as you. As you know, I obviously wasn't an experienced or skilled paddleboarder. Um my, my friend's name was Kate. She had probably done a little bit more than me, but but not too much. But then you just you just go at something and we just started the planning. I'm a big fan of spreadsheets. I don't think you can plan something too much. So we set about researching as best I could. Uh, Where does the river start? Where does it end? How many countries does it pass through? What currency do they use in those countries? What do you need to do at border checks? How do you do borders? Um, All those kind of things. And then a big part of it was when we were going to do it. Uh, My diary was empty for the year. I I decided I was going to take the year off. Um, Kate had another uh, project or a work a commitment come in which was i think was going to be the start of june we'd worked out it would take us about three months to to complete the paddle, and so we simply worked back from there so that
0: put us starting at the beginning of march how did you work out that it was going to take three months to do the pedal um
1: <laughs> looking back i mean i must have just put my finger in the air i don't know it's three thousand kilometers we obviously thought that we could do a thousand kilometers a month break that down into and i don't know 25 days uh um, uh, a month of paddling. I honestly don't remember. I suspect we talked to a few people. I know Dave Cornthwaite was a, a big help. I know we chatted to Spike and a few others that had done uh, long-distance paddling. Um, but, yeah, you, you have to put some kind of guesstimate on it, and that was ours. And so we 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 were all set to start on the 1st of March. So a big bit of the research was what the weather was going to be like. Um, the beginning of the Danube starts on the edge of the Black Forest in, um, in Germany. And as with most rivers, the source of it is is quite high up. So we were aware that uh, t- starting too early in the year, if we tried to go in January or February, it was likely to be um, incredibly cold, um, lots of snow around. But by March, um, all weather reports that we had seen from previous years seemed to indicate that, that the back of winter would have been broken and we should be good to start at that point. And uh, had it? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> um I mean, the answer to that is no. Um, so we arrived uh, out in the little town called Donna Eshingen, it is called. That's where the source of the Danube is. And it was, it was cold. There was snow falling and there was snow on the ground. But we're not talking, you know, meters and meters of it. It was, it was a covering of snow. Um, but everything has been set you've told everyone you're going to do this you've engaged with sponsors with brands you've made plans you've booked flights and so we we went and we went and started and i remember i've still got the photos of standing on the the banks of the danube underneath um a dual carriageway uh, tunnel the river flows underneath and fully geared up if there was ever an example of all the gear and no idea that could be the epitome in that photo um totally layered up with thermals, waterproofs, gloves, our boards there fully loaded, carrying all our kit. And the river moving at quite a pace. It wasn't particularly wide, probably no more than 10 meters wide at that point, um, but moving on at quite a lick. And, and we set off. Um, the plan very much was to camp the whole way down. Um, we had everything we needed with us from stoves, camping equipment, um, clothes, you, you name it, we had it with us. And, and we set off. And uh, that first day, uh, the river was um, quite choppy, quite bumpy. I, it took us several hours to get to the first place we could find where we could really get off and have a break. And thankfully, there was a, a small bakery there. And I remember at that point thinking, what on earth are we doing? What on earth are we doing? We we didn't have probably the skill and the technique to be able to stand up all the time. So um, uh, any potential dangers or, or small um, kind of breaks or ripples, we were down on our knees. But if anyone has paddled on their knees for more than even 20 minutes, you'll know that that is not a comfortable position to be in. Um, but but we, we did it. The, the thinking in my mind before we started is that, although I didn't know much about how to paddleboard, the river would start... Quite narrow and quite serene, and then as the days, weeks, and months went on, the river would get bigger and bigger and wider and wider. And by the time we got down to the middle and end sections, where there were huge intercontinental um, tankers and barges, that uh, actually my skill level would increase, and would I be able to cope with that? Knowing now, actually, the thinking was completely backwards, and it was the beginning sections of the river that were much harder, and the end sections that were easier. By the time you get to the end. The river at points is, you know, kilometers and kilometers wide. You've got so much space. It's incredibly flat. Um, It's very simple to paddle on. At the beginning, uh, in springtime, when you have all the snowmelt coming off the mountains, uh, the river level is incredibly high. It's moving at an incredible pace. And for the first 150 kilometers from memory, um, technically it is not navigable by boats. There are no charts we could find, no information about the water that could tell us um, what it was doing beyond what it showed on the map. So we know whether it was turning left or right. those first few days we had some very scary moments Uh, you would be paddling along and i may be about to paint a bad picture but it was stunningly beautiful the countryside the views where we were passing through was just incredible at times we had a light dusting of snow and it really was paddling in this kind of winter wonderland of an existence but there were some real dangers we would be paddling along it was utter silence and bliss except for the sound of the river and then suddenly you would just hear uh, a slight change in tone a slight rush the noise would increase and you quickly became aware that just around the next corner or approaching very quickly was some form of obstacle or weir or drop in the river and were
0: there mostly weirs because are no dams or rapids around there um well
1: we had a mixture of all three Um, And all three. So the first time we heard this rush of water, we obviously quickly made for the banks, scrambled to get off the the river and managed to do so and then took a walk. And um, repeatedly for the the first week, I think probably every day, four or five times this would happen. Um, And we get to a point where there were large boulders in the river. There were um, small waterfalls. I think the, the, the worst, almost dangerous one we came across was about a 10 or 12 foot vertical drop. Um, which just went off and there was no warning for this and that was probably the scariest one because we heard the water moving um, but the river was not always easy to get out of because the the river levels were so high it had gone up above the regular bank we were now into trees so there were occasions where we were just clinging onto branches and roots and doing anything we could to um, having to wade into the water find a steady footing and then get our boards out helping each other going exploring
0: yeah. And that in itself is a danger as well, because all the strainers, I mean, when all the r- w- river is flowing through the trees and, and, you know, wedging your board and you up against the trees, pretty dangerous. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: I mean, we'd made the decision not to wear any leashes at that point. Um, we were very clear and we'd um, spoken a lot that our boards, although important in carrying our kit, were not uh, were not essential. Um the key thing was to us to be safe as individuals so if we had to get off the river ourselves it meant losing the board then that's fine we can find that later and we can sort that out but make sure we ourselves are safe first so so that's what we did um and we we had to portage um in quite unpleasant conditions over lots of muddy fields which were full of snow um um over fences that were not meant to probably be climbed over but
0: uh, you have that determination and until tells you someone tells you you can't do it you you just keep going how did you portage because I, I remember looking on your youtube or your instagram when you're doing it and seeing quite an unusual um experiment going on there
1: yeah so i mean the these portages in the early days um were very rudimentary i mean it was just get off the river get into the field take all the kit off your board and then bag by bag board by board just walk it um, as far as you feel you need to until you can get back on again Um, further down the river once you get into uh, the navigable place where there are charts and it is set up more for boats and you're going through locks and dams generally i think all but the last two were set up to accommodate um waterborne craft having to be portaged so there would normally i'm not saying all the time but normally there would be somewhere where you could get off that might be signposted there may even be a small pontoon um and then a path that will take you through and an obvious place where you can put in the other side um most of them were fairly easy and fairly short portages there were some which went on for probably two or three kilometers um and we we knew this in advance so had purchased a set of wheels to take with us so a set of kayak wheels um and they were strapped to the top of the board when we uh, were just paddling and then we got off we would strap the wheels to the bottom and then hoik the other end of the board up onto your shoulder and just push it and go from there um it's so
0: much easier than yeah without the wheels it must be I mean I've done it myself up in we did some rivers up in the north of Portugal and uh some really really large dams that we had to navigate our way down into and it was it was really really tough carrying all your kit
1: yeah the 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 effort in getting off the river and portaging was often far greater than the effort of paddling itself um some of the places in germany and austria which are very much you know they're, they're big outdoorsy countries they would even have some really nice large sturdy trolleys that you could use so whenever we found those we would make the make the most of them but majority of times we just used our own uh set a little set of wheels they they were not that robust they did end up breaking um they didn't survive the whole journey with us um, but for the <laughs> the first few weeks when they were working they were invaluable but there are a lot of there are a lot of portages needed um from memory i think it, i want to say it was over 250 um it was a, an awful lot and never really
0: enjoyed them <laughs> never really enjoyed them at all Okay, but what went wrong? Because you, you started, and then um, after your, your surging paddle through the chilly spring waters of the Danube, you decided to call it a day, is it? Right
1: yeah that's right that's right so yeah as i said we started on the 1st of march um uh because we had to get back for for kate to start work at the beginning of june um a couple of weeks before we started actually the job that kate had uh, went away and was no longer there and we did have the discussion without the time constraint now of needing to be back for june whether we delayed things but as i said earlier everything was all set up and ready to go so we went for it um i think that the big thing on that, that first week Um, was what happened when we stopped paddling because we, as I said, we had planned to camp and be self-sufficient, but when you are paddling in cold and wet conditions and you get off the river, um, there was snow on the ground, so it wasn't easy to pitch tents. Even if we did pitch tents, um, we then got to figure out a way to dry our clothing and still stay warm. Um, That wasn't going to be possible, so we would be putting on wet and damp clothing the next day so with that in mind the first couple of nights we decided to find little guest houses or hostels we could stay in um which were which were really good and that was definitely the right decision from a safety point of view but after four or five days of doing that that hadn't been budgeted for we we obviously had a financial idea of what we could and wanted to spend on this trip. And paying to go into a guest house or a hostel every night was not part of it. We we knew we would at some point, especially going through the, some of the capital cities where it might not be possible to camp. But uh, to go and do that every night and do spending whatever it was for, to get a proper bed was not something we could keep doing. So that was one thing that was in our mind. And then I believe it was day four or five, we came up to a small... It was a beautiful town built up on a hill. And as we came up to it, we we stopped just before this little village walked up the hill and found a lovely traditional German uh, bar, restaurant, I don't know what you'd call it, pub, had some lovely traditional German pizza and were we're feeling really good about ourselves. Uh, Went back to the river, paddled on, and as we went under a low bridge, there was some fairly minor rapids. They weren't too crazy. Um, I went through on what I picked and I thought was going to be the good line, Um, and then Kate came through behind me and her fin caught on some submerged object um i now know it was a rock um i went back and did this whole journey again but that's a story for another day on a bicycle um and i went back and revisited this place and i saw that there were some large boulders and rocks just what would have been underneath the waterline in winter uh, and kate's fin caught that threw her off the board she um was completely submerged and obviously not wearing a leash Um, lost the board i was a little bit further down the river so heard her come off and um and and cry out thankfully she managed to make it to the bank quite quite easily i got to the bank a bit further down got my board out of the water managed to swim into the river as kate's board went past and got her board out as well um but we were both then obviously soaking wet (laughs) stood by the side of a, a river um Uh, with some snow coming down so quickly got out of our wet clothes dug through our bag um, put warm clothes on and then had the the realization of what what are you doing what are we doing here this is just crazy yes it's meant to be an adventure but it wasn't meant to be uh, a dangerous one and it wasn't meant to be one that put us in an unnecessary uh, state of peril so we were literally only just the other side of this village by now. Kate, thankfully, um, having lived in Germany, spoke some, some good German. So she went back into the town to see if there was anywhere we could stay for the night to kind of regroup and get warm and dry out our kit. Um, thankfully, she, she could find that. So we uh, hid our boards behind some, a woodshed <laughs> of a random farm, carried our bags up to this um, little hotel where we were the only guests and stayed there for the, for the night. Uh, We, we spoke to several people who, um, could put some insight and, and kind of give us a bit of clarity. It's always good to involve other people in the discussion because we were very much considering uh, stopping at that point. Um, and one, one great piece of advice was never make a, serious decision when you are cold tired or hungry and we were probably all three of those that evening so we went to went to bed and said we'd make a call the next morning and waking up we decided at that point that it was going to be it would be unsafe and unrealistic to carry on as we were so we would stop and we would put pause. And very much in my mind, it was a pause. This wasn't an end. This was just a, a temporary halt. So we very quickly got our bags together, got a train to the local or the next city, booked flights for the next day. And within uh, 36 hours of, of falling in the river, we were both back in the UK and had made the plan to, at that point, come back in two months' time. And restart the journey again at the point where we had just finished, but on the first of May, where we hoped spring really would have kicked in, the river level would have dropped, the snow would have disappeared, uh and actually the sun will be out a little bit more so so yeah, we
0: had two months and that was that that must have been yeah that must have been a difficult time to to wait those two months and, and come back, but when you did come back um was it as as you predicted it was it much sunnier and warmer.
1: I mean, firstly, you say it was a difficult time. Um, I had some friends out in Bali at that point, and as soon as they found out I had come off the river, they invited me out there. So 36 hours after falling off the river, 36 (laughs) hours after falling off the river, I was in London, and 36 hours after that, I was on a plane out to Indonesia, and I spent six of the eight weeks um, in Bali and the Gili Islands with some friends, and then I used to live in Australia, so I took the opportunity to fly down and catch up with some old mates in melbourne and i went to sydney and then on to perth and, and all sorts of things so um my my method of coping was, was sunshine and distraction so
0: <laughs> wonderful <Absolutely laughs> that was wonderful. a really little
1: mini adventure on its own and, and quite fortuitous
0: <laughs> but you know um, a trip like this to some people it sounds absolutely idyllic um, yeah obviously obviously more into the summer part of it would you suggest anyone else do a similar trip 100 percent
1: one hundred percent absolutely, and when we started again back in May, it was everything that we we really hoped it would be, and um, again, I was looking through some photos to remind me of this trip, and just the look on my face standing back out of that river with the river level probably two meters down, the sun shining, the grass green, and just going, "Yes, this is it, this is it um, and I think probably only two or three weeks after restarting i was into board shorts and a vest top and that's all i wore for the next two and a half months um it was an incredibly hot summer it was beautiful and gorgeous and really couldn't have been more idyllic but your question of should other people do it absolutely absolutely i learned so much about myself about who i am what i want what i enjoy um over that the the next three months um would would have gone back and done it in a heartbeat and has definitely informed decisions and made and other ventures I've taken since then.
0: I mean, obviously you're doing something like that. Surely you'd want to do it again and again. And you did do something similar a little bit later. So you went on to Paddle the Thames with um, our good friend Spike Reed. Yeah,
1: well, so the the yeah you know, the Danube was 2016. In 2017, I went and paddled the River Thames uh, on my own from its source up uh, in the Cotswolds. The source of the Thames is probably only ten miles from where I grew up, and I never really again knew that as a kid. So went back and I paddled the Thames on my own in about four and a half days um down to Putney at that point, which is where I lived. It seemed to make sense to paddle to the point of the river where i could just get off and walk home and then yeah chatting to spike um who'd uh, gone and done the ganges the same year i'd done the uh, the danube i don't i can't remember where the idea came from but we realized that as far as we were aware no one had paddled the length of the river thames on a tandem stand up paddleboard and at that point neither of us had ever been on a tandem stand up paddleboard so we thought well why not let's give it a go um so we again we just said you know why not we i knew the river the thames is paddled very regularly by people in all sorts of craft let alone motorized vehicles so um it's quite a known feat so to say but uh uh, we thought well, why not give it a go and while we're at it let's contact guinness and see if we can set a world record because if you're the first person to do something then you're always going to be the fastest person to do it so even if someone comes along and beats you then goes faster the next week at least you had it for a small amount of time so uh yeah we got in contact with the guys at red who very kindly said they were up for getting on board and uh, providing us with a Uh, a paddleboard we could use so we took that down to uh, limehouse and the lee valley canal and went out and did a a practice paddle and uh, had a little bit of time on our own on some single boards up on the regent's canal and then and then that was it so we went out and paddled the the thames and that very much was a very different challenge and paddleboard adventure Mm. because that was against the clock The, the danube Yes, we thought we would take three months to do that. But actually, if it had taken four, it didn't matter. And there was no great rush to do that. And that was part of the joy of the journey, um, is that you could take the time to see everything you were passing through and chat to everyone you were meeting along the way. The Thames are very much, no, we want to do this as quick as we can. We had set an uneducated target of 48 hours to try and do the Thames. And we had recruited... We
0: paddling straight through. Well, I we... Have everything
1: well we we had uh we had recruited some help i i knew i i wouldn't be able to paddle for 48 hours without sleep um but we'd done everything we could to reasonably uh set ourselves up with the best chance so we had people to help carry our our tents for us and our our equipment so when we would arrive late at night somewhere the tents would be set up and they could cook for us we didn't have to think about that um They would meet us on the way down and provide us with cake and tea and nice things like that that every adventure uh, should come complete with. So, um, no, we paddled. We decided to do it uh, on the longest day of the year. We thought that would give us the best chance to have the most hours of daylight to paddle in. So that was the middle of June. And we set off from a small place called Lechlade in the Cotswolds at about 4
0: o'clock in the morning. Sorry, can I just jump onto that quickly? Because the source to see things, I mean, a source of a river is always not, not often navigable. So do you start at the most, um, you know, the, the navigable navigable part? So, so yeah, for this, because we had been in contact with
1: Guinness, they had set out certain criteria. Um, and so, yeah, the actual source of the River Thames is a small place called Crick, Cricklade. I might be making that up and someone may jump on and comments on this and tell me I'm wrong. Um, but the the navigable part of it and for the world record it is for the Uh, non-tidal Thames and so that starts at Lechlade and finishes at Teddington so yeah any Guinness World Record for the Thames is the non-tidal section uh, because there are there are various rules once you get onto the Thames about where you can paddle and how you can paddle and um, all that kind of thing because obviously in the centre of London it's a big busy waterway so yeah we were going to go from Lechlade down to Teddington which was the non-navigable the non-tidal section, that's right, yeah.
0: Okay, and did you need a license for this or some kind of registration?
1: Um, No, I say that because we didn't really have one. So to paddle on the Thames, as with many um, waterways in the UK, yes, you do need a license, and the easiest way to do that that I have found is to become a member of the British Canoe Union. Oh, sorry the british canoe union um and by having a membership for that that gives you uh, a permit and a license and insurance to paddle on a not all but the vast majority of inland waterways uh, within the uk so we both had membership for that so we knew that we would be fine if we were to get stopped which we never did
0: mm-hmm. excellent and so how long did it take you in the end
1: uh so we did it in just uh 50 i believe it was 58 hours and 12 minutes or something so yeah about 10 hours longer than we had hoped but um was incredibly uh, it was a, it was <laughs> it was a really fun achievement to do i have never done anything against the clock like that before where you just have to keep pushing yourself and pushing and pushing and pushing and having someone like spike who is uh, an amazing character and personality himself to uh to be there and to act as a as a support as a guide to motivation was was really good i think if i had tried to do the same paddle in the same time on my own i don't think i would have done it having that uh, companionship and having that encouragement is hugely important but yeah a total amount of fun and uh, a lot of laughing and a great sense of achievement probably more sense of achievement to the end of that than when i got to the end of the danube
0: (laughs) which sounds ridiculous That does sound crazy. But I mean I've paddled with Spike as well, and he's always supremely optimistic and wonderful company. He really is great.
1: Yeah. No, no. Super super good chap. Really good.
0: Yeah. Okay. So can we just try and get into a few I bet there's one last question about that actually Are, do you still hold the Guinness world record for the fastest trip down the Thames unattended? a tandem side? No. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, two guys from again
1: from Active360 uh, went and did it uh, last year yeah 2019 so I, I forget what time they did it I think they knocked a good three or four hours off our record um, which was probably the, the time we stopped too many times to eat cake so uh, no good on them and I'm sure someone else will come along and, and beat it again and uh, yeah good luck to them i would i would encourage anyone to give it a go uh the next one spike and i have got our eye on is maybe having a quad board and taking four people down but um we haven't managed to stitch that one together yet but maybe one day (laughs)
0: that sounds like a good idea so um just a few tips for expeditions for people who are starting out i mean they may not necessarily want to go two and a half thousand kilometers down the danube but um what are a few practical tips for going on sub camping trips that you've picked up Wow
1: tips! I mean, the first tip is just to go and do it. I mean, paddleboarding is a lovely way to travel uh, at any time, whether you 're out exploring your local lake on the ocean or a river. But to go and have a multi day and multi week journey uh, takes things to a whole new level and I guess that 's true of any form of transport i've i 've used to go on adventures, whether that 's been a running journey, a bicycle or or, or a kayak or canoe. But paddleboarding for me definitely holds a special place so that the first thing is to go and do it. Um, the second thing is to set yourself a realistic target and don't put pressure on yourself um the the lovely thing about the danube as i said is that we had the time and we could enjoy what we were doing and where we were going through and making the most of being there so don't don't overthink things don't overplan things the rivers are beautiful ways to travel a lot of life is based along the river um historically you know to live we have needed fresh water and uh, rivers are a massive part of that so for the danube especially but even for the thames or many other rivers there's there is lots of life there is lots of community don't feel you have to power on through and miss that try and take the time to engage if you can and uh, and see the places you are travelling through and then I guess the final thing is just to to be as prepared as you can to try and do the research as best you can. The more you know in advance, the less unpleasant surprises you have along the way, uh, the more you're going to enjoy it. Now, you're never going to plan everything in detail and nail every little bit of precision. And uh, the times that things do go wrong generally lead to amazing experiences of in- engaging and meeting other people. And people and human beings are awesome. And uh, I had far more experiences on every adventure, but especially the Danube when people wanted to help and know what I was doing and get involved rather than those that uh, wanted to cause any grief or,
0: or harm to us. Mm, that's excellent advice that it really is um i've just got one little piece of advice as well it's a more practical thing for people um whenever you go camping sub camping or on an expedition or something always take a ground sheet and then empty out all your stuff onto the ground sheet because it's just so much easier than actually <laughs> getting a ground sheet i don't know i mean so many people don't go with a ground sheet and uh, it just makes things so much easier
1: uh you see i'm a i'm a uh, I, I'm a sucker for uh, counting weight and making sure I'm not carrying any ounce that I don't need to so for me, I think a ground sheet would be a luxury I don't need if I was going in the summer but um now everyone has their own <laughs> <laughs> their own luxury item, and if yours is a ground
0: sheet, then go for it yeah, absolutely no I don't mind padding a couple of extra kilos. <laughs> 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 oh god uh oh, man but it's been amazing chatting to you andy and what's what's next are you are you looking at any other rivers or any other sub trips or, or anything else in the future
1: well in the stuff? in the current time frame when we are locked down in corona i'm just staring at maps and looking at my paddle boards and bicycle dreaming of going anywhere um but yeah i think the next for me may be another cycle trip so in 2018 having done the river i knew that I wasn't finished with that part of the world. The The paddleboard and the river is an amazing way to travel. And you have a very unique perspective on um, the landscape you are passing through. And you get to see parts of those countries and even towns and cities that people that live there don't get to see because the, the, the river takes you through gorges and channels, which roads and paths don't go to. So Before I'd finished paddling, I knew I wanted to go back. Um, I I was passing through places where you couldn't always get off from the river. You might get to a beautiful town or monument or something you want to go and look at. But if there's no access off the river, then you have to miss it and and keep going. So in 2018, I decided I was going to go back and redo the Danube, but this time on my bicycle. So um, I went and I actually... Instead of flying and starting from the beginning in Donareshingen, I just realized it would be far more easier and make a lot more sense if I just cycled from London. So I set off from my front door and I cycled to Germany to the source of the river. And so that was about 800 kilometers, I think. And then I followed the river with my bike. Um, The the Danube cycle path uh, is quite a well-trodden in parts um cycle route so i knew that would be straightforward and the lovely thing about any river journey whether you're paddling or cycling or whatever is you don't need to do navigation which way is the water flowing that way brilliant well that's the way i need to go so i went back and i experienced it by by bike and it was lovely to see and to experience it once again and the places that i couldn't get to um, I was able to to properly explore. Even the places I had been able to get to with the paddleboard, once you're off the river, you've still got a 12-foot inflatable paddleboard with 110 litres worth of equipment, which you need to do something with because you can't just leave it lying in the open. So even exploring when you were on land wasn't easy when I was paddling. So to have the bicycle was great, and it meant I could go and see some more places. But equally as fascinating was going back and revisiting places where uh, i had paddled through and the as i said earlier the place where kate had fallen in and we paused our journey i went back to and i was really intrigued to go and see and this was mid summer when i was cycling so towards the end of july the river level was much much lower to the point that where we came off our boards, I could quite easily walk across without water going above my knee. Um, And to go and stand in the river in blazing 30-degree sunshine and just try and picture it in the snowstorm when we saw it was, was bonkers. Even more bizarre, there are parts of the Danube which disappear in the height of summer there isn't enough water in the upper reaches of the danube for it to survive and it disappears through the rocks and for 15 20 kilometers goes underground and there's just nothing but an empty riverbed so to go and witness that was totally bizarre so that was super nice but i know i want to go back and see the see the river once again um people have said i should go back and run it so i can say i've done a full triathlon uh, I'm not convinced that that's going to happen, but some form of some form of motorised vehicle maybe. I spent last summer, uh, I spent three weeks of 2019 uh, building my own campervan, so I now have that as a way to explore. So maybe I'll take that into Europe once we're allowed. But if not, uh, a bicycle maybe from the north of Europe down to the bottom of Greece, um, or with a paddleboard yeah just just show me a river and i'll go and do it the the mississippi is probably quite her up on the list i know that's quite iconic and has been done many times before um i'd like to do some more in the uk the the river seven would be nice
0: um the river avon okay you mentioned um something like like you know sub triathlons or or just tri- triathlons generally and have you ever thought about or has anyone ever thought about doing a bike and sup trip where you actually carry the bike on the sup and the sup on the bike <laughs> I, I don't know about anyone else. I I, I have thought about it,
1: yes, um, having a small Brompton or something like that. I haven't ever fully f- thought through, firstly, how you would transport the board when it is being towed behind a bicycle and also found the journey or the place that would necessitate both land and water transport. I'm sure there is maybe somewhere in the Swiss Alps going between some of the lakes and then cycling the river sections down. I don't know, but yeah, if anyone's got any suggestions or ideas, I'd be definitely up for hearing about them. Cause uh, yeah, I think that would be a, a brilliant idea and a lovely way to, to travel.
0: Yeah. You just stick an inflatable on your back. I mean, I know Red's got these really small paddle boards now that can fold up, but uh, yeah. yeah, crazy idea. Crazy <laughs> idea. <laughs> so Andy, where can we find you
1: online? Uh, you can find me online so I I have a website if you're interested in following kind of what I get up to and having a look at some of the other crazy things I've done uh, I'm on followandy.com or Instagram, Twitter Facebook, all the usual things just search for Andy Bartlett uh, and look for someone with greying hair and probably a buoyancy aid on and that will be me
0: (laughs) brilliant well it's been wonderful chatting to you, thanks so much Andy no thank you for having me, absolute pleasure Thank you for listening to SUP FM, the
1: number one podcast for stand up paddlers wherever you are. If you like what
0: you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then, we'll see you on the water.